Welcome to Man in the Making with former monk Rajan Shankara and our guest, former monk Satyanada. Thank you for joining us on the podcast, Satyanada. It's great to have you on here. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you very much. Rajan is a very important person on my path. Satyanada, welcome, my brother. So, <laughs> my brother monk, uh, brother from another mother, <laughs> same guru. <laughs> everyone uh, watching, listening, uh, and joining in with us, Satyanath and I served in a monastery uh, in Hawaii, on the island of Kauai, and he was uh, received his training before me, and then I came in, and Satyanath is the first monk I met, and I was like, whoa, who is this dude? He's, he's good. He's got it. <laughs> And he was very calm and peaceful. <laughs> Do you remember that, Satyanada? I completely remember that. I even remember the first time I saw you. Um, Saravana Paswami, who's another monk, had told me that someone special was coming for the tour day. Uh, it was someone interested in becoming a monk. And I, I was the tour guide. I was supposed to go down there and give the tour to these, I don't know, 100 people. But I had to keep a close eye on that special man who was supposed to be interested in becoming one of us. And you know, some really weird people show up trying to become monks, uh, basically because monks are weird. And, uh, but you have to be the right kind of weird. You have to be willing to let go of so many things and to, you have to love the training and to love the discipline itself. And you have to be very generous with an open heart. Anyway, so... I walked down the path, a beautiful path, and I saw a man with a beautiful, um, uh, it was a gown kind of thing in a, in a grayish tone. He was beautifully dressed, and he looked very firm, very determined, very stout, kind of intense, and that was Rajan. So I wel welcomed him, and I said, well, let me show you the monastery. And uh, so we went, and... I'm glad to be part of his history. Satyanala, how long were you, uh, in, did you train for in the monastery? I was there for eight years, uh, less than you did. And after a while, I, I, was, I never gave up spirituality and self-control. I'm still in awe of all of that. That's what I do for a living. I try to find some peace and use strategies for achieving that inside, just like you. Uh, some of them are very ancient, some of them are modern. I don't mind, they just have to be effective. And when I achieve that, I can teach that. That's the difference between, so I learned, between the, just a teacher and someone who could be a master. A teacher knows, a master is living what he knows. So, uh, not a master, but I'm striving to one day, perhaps in this life or another, become one. And for me to do that, I have to really live what I have learned. And so I was in awe of meditation and all of that. But the monastery is also a religious institution. And I'm not a religious person. I believe that all religions have nuggets of truth in them. So after eight years, I stood up one day and I said, thank you for this monastery. And I left. I never, I never unmonked myself fully. I'm still uh, a renegade monk, but, <laughs> but that's who I am right now. 
and uh, we're we're cut from the same cloth, of course. Um, and and as as usual, we don't have a plan for this um, podcast and this video and everything. But I figured the two of us we we haven't been able to record anything together or work together yet. This this is the this is the breakthrough uh, moment where we begin our first project together, which is exciting. And I, I'm, I'm curious about several things and uh, we've had wonderful discussions off air. What, let's just start with the basics though. I wanna know quickly about your book. I want everyone else to know about it too even if they're if they're in the spanish speaking world but it'll be in english eventually so let's let's do the book thing so i hope so i hope so i'll give you the long answer but i i promise it's not too long um there are wonderful spiritual teachings out there but you know some of them are in very ancient language like the upanishads which we got in touch a little bit um the Vedas, and many wonderful teachings from many religions. Some are modern, some are ancient. But you know, those things need to be uh, lit again, like a fire every, every hour, every day. Um, and the truth may be one and very deep, but the truth manifests in different ways, depending on the... And, and that's what a religion is. You know, something extraordinary happens somewhere, like the Buddha was born, or some beautiful teaching came through, and then it gets entangled and mixed with local culture and the customs and the habits of that local time. And then you have cultural, a cultural varnish and a cultural entanglement along with beautiful teachings. So I think that even though uh, I'm just um, a beginner walking the path, you know, uh, even though I have meditated for many, many thousands of hours. Um, <laughs> I thought that even though great ones have written books, that happened, you know, centuries ago or decades ago. And maybe I would have something to say because I'm the age of Zoom meetings and pandemics. And they were not. <laughs> they were writing back then. And some inner truths remain the same, but how to adapt them uh, no, in your lives right now. One, one of the changes, to give you an example, is what is happening right here. My chat with Rokas and Rajanada, this is extraordinary. Um, because if you wanted to know something from a monk in the decades before, um, you would have to renounce things, uh, climb up a mountain, join a distant monastery, make crazy vows, and then live, you know, sleeping on a, on a board on the floor and become celibate, and then wisdom would come to you. Now you're watching a Zoom meeting. Come on, things have changed. <laughs> there's, a lot of, there's a lot of monastic experience in this, in this room. It, it's, it, it's interesting. <laughs> Isn't it interesting? 20 years. Oh, goodness. 20 years. So have you enlightened yet? Have you reached enlightenment yet? <laughs> how, how, how dare you ask me that question? <laughs> <laughs> when people ask me that, I actually have an interesting answer, but we'll get back to that. Um, so 
my book is based on the concept that uh, monks become monks in order to attain a certain level of consciousness and to change the way their awareness flows. And that monks do that in order to achieve a goal. And, and that's what matters. It's not the clothing, it's not the vows, it's not not having sex. Otherwise, everyone in a dry spell would become a monk. That's not the point. <laughs> the point is working with awareness and meditating so that you can achieve something which is, which is called this Advaita uh, state of consciousness, which is the monos, which is the one, meaning I am energy and you're that same energy and we are different aspects of it, like a light which... When, it, when it's split by a crystal, it becomes many colors. So you may be one color, I may be another, but it's the same monos. And in very high levels of consciousness, uh, this construct, which is, uh, seems to be real, apparently real for us, uh, our history, our surroundings, and th that very rigid story we tell ourselves about who we are. We tend to think our identity is our history, what have we been through? That's absolutely not true. <laughs> uh, but that's very firm and rigid. And once you meditate, you begin to discover that you're just the energy which was sustaining that narrative which you have told yourself and built your identity. And that it's much more flexible. You can change it. And you can change everything. It's just made of light in differently condensed forms, like water can, be, can become ice, energy becomes matter and stories and personalities and traumas. So you just have to unweave that energy through some techniques which are not, uh, which, which are not easy, they require effort, but it can be done. Oh, definitely, you need help. And everyone needs help, I need help. You need someone who has trodden that path. Um, so that's why we went to the monastery. We, we went, we went so that you and I were both saying at one point in our lives, we need someone to show us what this means. We understand that it's there, but how do I contact it? How do I do this? And we, we, we left our homes and ventured off into the wilderness. You did very, in a very literal way. <laughs> <laughs> In, in, in Rajan's book, he um, talks a lot about how his ego is kind of a self-perpetuating mechanism. And everyone's ego is like that. And he's very good at teaching us strategies and how to deal with the ego. But we had to learn those. That's why we went to the monastery. I mean, if there was Ego Control 101 at the local university, we would have joined. It's easier. No sleeping <laughs> on the floor, right, Rajan? <laughs> Oh boy, I, I it's funny. I I talk about those disciplines today, and and I and I always tell stories to students about what the various things that we did with body and mind to push us into other realms of consciousness. But um, I always wonder, you know, if there was a if there was a more balanced approach, and and would I have taken it, even if there was course there is a more balanced approach right um you know i've done many things in my life the hard way 
And the, the lesson I get from those, Rajan, is both, I was very dumb, A, and that's what I needed at the time, B. <laughs> so what is exactly. done is done. Let's not do that again. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me about the two greatest decisions in your life then. Oh, you know, um, I was born in a, in a um, middle-class Brazilian family, which means we had... Um, we could, we could afford a nice life and we could learn English in the hopes that someday you could, you know, get a job which was a better job. and Maybe even one day travel to uh, the United States of America or the UK and not work there. That's too much of a dream. But, you know, just be in touch with the leaders of the world. And I studied computer engineering. Because I wanted to know how things were created and the, the building blocks of software and, you know. Um, but then I became very disillusioned with it. And I had a good career in Brazil as, you know, computer engineer and things like that. But I, I had this big hole in, my, in myself. So I was, I was distraught. I was so unhappy and I didn't know why. And eventually, um, I left everything behind to, because I read a book called Dancing with Shiva, which is a beautiful Indian metaphor, which means, imagine that the divine, you may call it God, but God is such an overused word, you know, <laughs> this anthropomorphic God who's up sitting on a cloud judging you. That's not what I mean. I mean, this infinite love and this infinite intelligence, which pervades, pervades everything. So... Uh, I, this Indian metaphor, Dancing with Shiva, means imagine that we're part of the body of an infinite being, like your cells are part of yourself. And when you move, your cells move. So imagine that you're moving in the galaxy on Earth in this infinite body of a greater being, this divine being, whom we call God because we are just too small to understand it and too, too, too childish. And Dancing with Shiva says, everything's connected. There's only one infinite being dancing. So there's a method. So there's an idea. And Rajanath asked me about my two craziest ideas. So you're looking at a computer engineer uh, who had a good-looking girlfriend and who had a job. And he said, well, maybe I should become a monk. And that's because I was depressed and so unhappy with every achievement. I thought, well, maybe I just need a prettier girlfriend. And so I went and I was disappointed in the end when the, that infatuation uh, wore off. So I left everything behind. That's crazy decision number one. And I went to the monastery where later Rajan would find me. And the second craziest decision uh, was that eventually after learning a lot at the monastery, I told them I want to go away. I want to leave. And they gave me $2,000, a plane ticket to wherever I wanted. And I just landed on San Jose, California. One day, it was a Saturday. And I had $2,000 and no certainty, no job, 
no idea about my future and I had to rebuild my life. And I did not starve. Here I am. <laughs> Satina, I'm, I'm the, <clears throat> the pictures of my own past, my, the recent past is coming up. And, uh, I remember all those steps myself. And what I remembered uh, is I, I, I'm curious to what you think about this because a lot of young people ask me, they see the position that I was in, they see what I did with time and um, you know, the things that I learned and the way I can speak to people and everything and, and who I am now. And they say, is that what I should do? Should I go and, and become a monk and, and leave the world because women aren't making me happy, men aren't making me happy, whatever, uh, money is not, not making me happy, or I don't even want money. Uh, and I've had a hard time with answering that question um, because I'm, I'm torn between, yes, of course, that path was uh, beautiful, but at the same time, I also learned that there may be another way to acquire knowledge and turn it into wisdom. Um, what would you tell that, that young person in the, this tumultuous time of their life? You may remember that when you first saw me, uh, you had been living in, in the woods, right? In the wilderness, basically, eating up coconuts. Um, yes. That's right. This man is tough. Ladies and gentlemen, this man is tough. Uh, he really wanted things. He, was, he has this adamant willpower. Um, and he wanted to get things done and he did. But when he first saw me, I mean, it wasn't even fair. I was sleeping in a hut and he was sleeping in a tent. So I looked better. I looked help, healthier. I looked happier. And he said, I want to be like Satyanatha. I remember that. Um, so it's, it's very normal for, it's, it's, when people look at someone who seems to be doing well, they say, tell me what you did. I want to do that. So I've heard that too, uh, Rajan. People asking me, should I become a monk? Um, and actually, when I first asked Gurudeva, he was alive, I asked him, should I become a monk? He said, well, that's a God question. <laughs> so it's not obvious. It's about higher powers in your own path. This is what I would answer, Rajan. Yes, absolutely. You should do what I did. But no, you should not do it like what, in the same way I did it. Do what I did, which is to yes. look for your own self and improve yourself and work within yourself and to find your own path and to break barriers and to uh, dare and then to fail and to cry and, and to eventually succeed. Do what I did, but don't do it in the same way I did it because it's not going to work. That's beautiful. That's Man, I wish uh, I had thought of a simple enough answer like that. Uh, what I say is, is that the, the monastery you seek is within you, right? And that's what your book is about, too. Your book is, is called, in, 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 if you were to translate it to English, How to Become a Monk? Being a monk. Being a monk. And then the very first... The very first chapter proposes this, that humanity usually uh, mistakes method for the goal. So um, 
people think so you that see the, you miss the trees in the forest. You miss the, the, you miss the, the trees. And thank you, Reginald. See, everyone needs a teacher. And because he's a native speaker of English, he has many things to teach me. You uh, miss the forest from the trees. That's it. You miss the, is it, you miss the forest through the trees? Yes. <laughs> instead of seeing, well, there's always the creative interpretation. Um, but I guess you, you look at the trees and you forget there's a forest, which is what it was all about, right? I think. I don't, English is my second or third language, so I guess it's the second by now. Mine too. <laughs> Mine too. <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's the details. It's it's you're looking at. I wore the robes. I had the the shaved head. I I was studying and everything. You're you're looking at where I was and what I did, and then you're you're conflating that. You're mixing that with the um, and uh, so you have to follow these exact same paths and steps to to attain the same state. That's it's. it's uh, it's it's not correct. It, it it's not historically true, nor is it um, nor is it uh, uh, logical. Well, there's that very old saying. Um, I, I wish I could remember who first said it, but you can't bathe twice in the same river. So if you did the same things I did, who knows where you would end up? Right? You followed your path. Right. I followed my path. And uh, uh, there's this beautiful way of looking at it, which is, let's look at the same Northern star. We will aim for the same goal, but you have to steer your boat according to what happens to your boat. And I have to steer my boat according to what happens to mine, but we will go to the same place. Now, if I just try to steer mine, just like you're steering yours, I would fail because I'll face different challenges and different waves and different uh, winds. Yeah, that's, that's it right there. Um, that's a, that's a beautiful topic. Uh, but that's not also something that I uh, run into a lot. What I run into a lot is helping relationships. That's a big one. Uh, relationships and meditation yeah okay so tell so your book is and your book and your teachings are much more how do i say this like they're much more spiritual than mine i get spiritual but in a bit of a different way um do you have do you have to guide couples and, and marriages and people coming out of divorce and do you have that in your teachings as well here's my answer uh, Rajanada or if I call him Rajanada that's because he that was his monk name I know he's Rajanada but uh, Natha is the lineage so here's the answer um, when I look at you your looks fit the part in the sense that you look very strong and you're inwardly strong as well. You look firm but kind, and that's what I know that you are. And you're like a bulldozer for higher spiritual achievements. You help people uh, deconstruct bad habits. You help them build confidence. You build a foundation 
which I'm not good at building. I indeed, it's part of my nature to be someone who's an advocate for higher spiritual achievements. But without the strong foundation, I am powerless to help people. So when people come to me and they have those kinds of problems, I can help them, but I doubt that I'm as efficient as you are, and I truly mean it. Uh, so I sometimes ask for help. There's other people here, counselors and, you know, psychologists and people I work with who will help couples. And, and yes, I, I guide them as to what needs to happen. This person has this problem with this person. And sometimes I can see it very quickly. But I don't treat that and I don't guide that as effectively as, as you do. And I think it's one of the points that we should touch on, touch upon which is um, spirituality is not just looking at the stars. It's making sure that you transform your life and your relationships and your meditation so that those stars can be within reach. Uh, because yes, I'm here talking about monastic consciousness and high meditations and so on and so forth. But I know there's a group of people I can't help because I don't have a Rajan Shankar here with me. <laughs> Truly, well, look, I, you're, you know, I'm, I'm, we're always still working on our ego. So how could you add so much more work to my day schedule? Now I have to meditate. Oh, you're doomed now. <laughs> <laughs> my ego is—I have to stamp it out again. <laughs> you know, one thing I so, learned, which really has really helped me with my ego, when when people give me a compliment. I usually look like a deer in the headlights because I'm thinking inside, oh my God, that's only half true. And then I'll have to work so hard for the other half to become true. Oh my God. <laughs> I, I have so many, I have so many good teachers and, and I, I thoroughly, thoroughly believe that everyone needs a coach, a mentor, a guide. Um, and coaches need coaches. Guides need guides. We all need yeah. a role model to look up to. Uh, living or dead, it doesn't matter. I'm fortunate to have both. I have, I have uh, people nearby me that uh, are showing me different things that I never knew was possible. And I give praise as much as I can to the, the humans that I've studied from history. And uh, in fact, have, as, as you know, write about that quite a bit. And one of my, uh, one of my, I think one of my gifts or capacities is, is the ability to share that if you, if you don't start reading and learning about people who have come before, you won't have as many options as, as the people who do read. And uh, I've certainly been blessed with the spontaneous infatuation and obsession of studying, reading, and researching uh, people that are much smarter in their area than I am and much greater mm -hmm. than I will be. And uh, I think to, to hold on to those people as if they're mentors, and even though you've never met them, never will meet them, uh, it gives you an advantage, I think. Um, you know, even someone as smart as uh, Isaac Newton, 
I mean, the guy invented calculus when he was 23. I was struggling <laughs> to understand it <laughs> at that age. Uh, and he said, I only did this because I was standing on the shoulders of giants. Um, it's very, very foolish to try to reinvent the wheel. You have to question the wheel. This, couldn't it be more round? Uh, can we improve it in any way? No sacred cows, you know? Um, but Rajanatha is a very well-read person. And he, what he's saying here is invaluable, that if you uh, read about the lives of others, you will see exactly what we were talking about earlier, that uh, they will inspire you. And the variety of these great lives of men and women will show you, just by virtue of being different between themselves, that there's not, not one path, and that your path will be different from theirs. But you will catch on. Okay, so what do they have in common? They question, they have self-inquiry without questioning themselves all the time. They don't, they don't let this, this inner dialogue discourage them, just challenges them. So they question themselves, but they don't stop. They try to become better, not by competing against others, but by competing against who they were yesterday. They have a goal who's bigger than themselves, which is a driving goal. And they have a profound respect for greatness. It doesn't matter where it comes from. No one who disrespects greatness can become great. So if you see someone who's great and all you feel is envy, you will never be great yourself. But Rajan is telling us here, read about greatness, admire greatness, so that then can catch unto you. And it doesn't matter where greatness comes from. If a flower blossoms, it doesn't matter who planted it. I'm just happy that it exists. And I will try to you know, also seed and plant my flowers and try to find my greatness. Um, it's very important to read about those people. Beautiful. Rokas, do you have anything to say before I completely change the subject and we just go all over the place crazy? Uh, nothing to add, no. It's just amazing to listen to both of you. Glad Since to be you here. Both of you are just two amazing minds. And I, if I will have any value to add or speak, otherwise it's just great to listen. I'm learning so much. Rokas always has amazing things to add. Uh, I just have to poke and prod him and pull it out of him. <laughs> I, I think that uh, silence, you know that, Rajan, and you know that, Rokas, silence um, may be a sign of having nothing to say, or it may be a sign of great wisdom. Uh, silence sometimes as, uh, is, is, the, is the mark of someone who's really, really just being the watcher so that he can absorb everything. I, I sometimes admire people by what they say, but sometimes I admire people by their silence. Rajan knows that. Absolutely. Absolutely. I wish I had the same skills. I, uh, I talk so much, I get annoyed <laughs> by my own voice. <laughs> And then I'm quiet, and at the end of the day, Helena is, is like, you know, wondering why I'm so quiet. And it's like, so I, I don't have to talk near myself anymore. It's really annoying. 
So, all right, here we go. Satyanatha, most podcasts and books and uh, spiritual, meditative, yogic resources in the world today fail to talk about what I'm now going to talk about. And that is the great Savikalpa Samadhi and Nirvikalpa Samadhi. Um, two states of meditation. <laughs> two states you can of see my face here. I love it. <laughs> two states of meditation that um, are very uh, misunderstood. And I uh, see resources try to speak about them, but they miss the mark. And you and I have a very, uh, you, we have an advanced um, training. Our teachers were, were quite good at expressing um, the, these areas and non-areas. And uh, I want to talk about them a little bit. So is it still your understanding after everything that you've learned up to this point that uh, those two states of meditation are are what the devotee, what the seeker and meditator is going to experience, and or is is are the only two states possible, or is there any, anything else that uh, we don't know about? I'm certain that there are many other states I don't know about, but those true states are true. Those two, two landmarks are real, and they can be reached. Um, I'm pretty sure there are others. That's why I said earlier, when people ask me, so what about enlightenment? And I say, well, that's such a poor word, because you don't even know what it means. The person asking doesn't know what it means. I mean, does it mean the first inner light you see, Balikana? The first inner glow, which is faint? Is it Iftye? Is it a powerful light within you? Is it the lightening up of your spine? Is it Nirvana? Is it Satori? Is it Savikalpa Samadhi? Is it Satchitananda? Nirvikalpa Samadhi? Is it Moksha, freedom from rebirth? What do you mean? And then the person just looking at me at that point. I have no idea what I mean. Say thank you. Uh, so exactly. Enlightenment can mean many things. It's not a good word. It's just the simplification the West has created about complex uh, things from the East. But at the deep, at, at the purest level, to enlighten, to reach your own inner light, all of those stages are small um, quotas, small quantas uh, of enlightenment. So there are many, many stepping stones. And those two you mentioned, uh, Savikalpa Samadhi and Nirvikalpa Samadhi, are two major ones. And maybe there's something beyond. Just ask me in 100 years, in this birth or another, we'll talk about that. I don't know yet. <laughs> yeah, I would. So let's. So as you were talking about that, I was thinking about Satchitananda. And uh, Savikalpa Samadhi is, is more commonly known in the yogic world, classical yoga references as Satchitananda, exactly. which is consciousness, uh, bliss consciousness, basically. And to, the, way, the way it was described to us 
the way it was described to us is that it's the mind of God or it's, it's, it's the entering into the permeating force that is uh, the, the world. And to get into that means that you still have form, you still have consciousness, okay? Except now you're in a state where you understand absolute love or you understand absolute compassion. And you've risen your consciousness to a certain point where everything really is perfect. And then there's uh, the state beyond form, beyond mind, beyond consciousness, which is called nirvikalpa samadhi. And that's the, that's the, uh, that's the traditional self-realization moment where uh, the, the meditator, and I think this is where you're getting at, Satchinada, is, is the connotations are, uh, or the, the uh, yeah, the connotation of the word is uh, culturally a bit uh, misaligned with the truth because we expect, and, and, and me as a, as a young monk, when I was coming in, I expected enlightenment to be this grand thing and all of a sudden you um, could perform special powers and you could walk on grass and flowers sprouted and you know you were you could see through walls and things like that but but in, in truth um, we we simply go from one state which has many many substates to uh, the ultimate non-state like deep sleep that's how i explain it right so to, to go into meditation and remove consciousness simply means to not be there for the experience. Like you're not there for deep sleep, like in deep sleep, there's, you cannot be aware and say, I am sleeping deeply or else you would be conscious again. There would be no deep sleep at that moment, but you would quickly get out of it. And that's much like to, to me, Nirvikalpa Samadhi um, only experienced after the fact, after it happens. Go ahead, Santinella. What comes to mind uh, as I start to talk about these two states that, that are rarely talked about? Oh, the poor mind trying to talk about the states which are beyond the mind. Let's, let's push the poor thing. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So that's a good point. Why, why did you say that? Tell me, tell me about that. Well, the mind has limits and it can only reach a certain area of existence. I mean, um, if you have a car, you can go anywhere on your continent, but you can't really go to another continent. Um, you have a, if you have an airplane, you can go anywhere on earth. Still, it's just the Earth, this pebble. You know, you can't fly to the Moon or to Mars. So each vehicle, uh, each machine has its limitations, and the mind is a machine. Um, we can hack it, though. And one of those two stages, Rajanada, Rajan mentioned, um, Savikalpa Samadhi, which is also known as Sat Chit Ananda Sat. My name, my name comes from that. And sat means b both true and essential. That which is not varnished or hasn't been changed. It's, it's just the, the, the most essential thing. It's the truth. 
it's not truth as in as in a fact. It's not like this room is white. It's not sad. But um, I can say something very deep and feel something very deep. Like I'm connected with the sun right now, shining on me because I can see sunlight over there, and and that is a deeper truth than just you know something temporary. So sat is a deeper truth. Chit is consciousness. And ananda is the absolute bliss which the soul abides in uh, when it's free from the mind. So this state, Satchitananda, also called Savikalpa Samadhi, I think I can answer you better, uh, Rajanada. Let's begin with that one, which is easier um, to describe because you still have a form. Uh, Savikalpa means uh, you still have a form. Your consciousness still exists. I remember, I remember the very first time I achieved that state. May I tell you that story? Yes, I, I, you can't forget the first time that happens. But it was very funny because I wasn't meditating with the monks. I was uh, attending as a helper to our Guru Bodhinath in a retreat in a redwood forest, a beautiful redwood forest. And Bodhinath is the spiritual powerhouse. He's so clean and inside, his, his beautiful inside. But as he told me once, the problem with, he said, quote, quoting him, the problem with, with my personality is I don't have one. <laughs> so he, he's so quiet and he's so shy that his lectures are, he has to prepare them. Uh, he's very inward. And he was teaching a lecture, which was the fifth time I heard it, and I hadn't slept well. So I thought, oh my God, if I, I'm going to fall asleep here. I have to do yeah. something very interesting for me to not fall asleep. And meditating doesn't let me fall asleep. After a while, you, meditation becomes so interesting that you don't fall asleep. So I just started meditating very strongly while Bodhinath was teaching in a big redwood forest, in a beautiful house in the middle of this forest. And I was meditating very hard because I was trying very hard to not fall asleep. And after, you know, five minutes, 10 minutes, I completely forgot sleepiness. And I was just feeling the energy and the trees were there and so on and so forth. And all of a sudden I lost control of the known path of the meditation because my experiences of inner light, and that's how I got to Satchitananda, my experiences of inner light became so strong, they became overwhelming. Yeah. And, and all of a sudden, uh, the third eye was a little bit open. Uh, it's not mandatory, but it can happen. Um, and I could kind of feel and see in a haze everyone around, but I was more and more just made of energy. And Satyatanana is a little bit like tapping into the the energy grid of reality. Um, everything exists because it's sustained by some energy. In Hinduism, they say it's Shakti, the divine feminine principle, and Shiva is consciousness. So everything is made of energy, which they call Shakti. And somehow I hacked into it, and everything, the trees, the people, the guru, myself, everything was just pure energy, the same energy. I forgot about the forms 
and I could feel the energy of everything. And I was connected to everything through that grid. And then I investigated. I could feel the spiller of lights above my head, making me very similar to the trees. It was overwhelming. I could just barely breathe. Breath becomes very shallow when your consciousness is so deep. Um, your awareness has gone deep in consciousness. And uh, I started to investigate that energy. What is this? And then I felt exactly what Rajan mentioned. This is love. This is compassion. Oh my God, this is what they call divine. Wow. I had this tremendous experience. I sustained it for like 10 minutes. Then I slowly came back. And when I opened my eyes, the first thought, my first thought was, wow, I'm going to be in trouble. <laughs> I was the worst helper my guru had ever had. <laughs> he needed to fix the microphone. <laughs> I wasn't there. It's meditating. Yeah. When we were doing these trips, um, you know, you had to be on point. We, we were the, not only the, the tech uh, assistants and engineers behind it, but we were the travel coordinators. We were with the luggage people, people watching people and schedules. So I can see how uh, that was definitely not the right time to uh, explore the outer and inner mind at the same isn't, time. Isn't that a good lesson that we keep waiting for the right time? And <laughs> my, my first Savikalpa Samadhi was so out of the blue that it even got me in trouble. Isn't that a beautiful story? <laughs> wonderful um, stop waiting well, for that's things. an interesting that's an interesting point because so people that's what they want they want these experiences they want the love they want the harmony and they want to, to transcend this world that brings them so much pain and suffering and so a lot of people you try to use um, hallucinogenics they try to take a something and and they want to alter their state of consciousness without all the, the, the hard work. And, and people ask me about that all the time. And, and my answer is very clear on that. It's like, well, whatever you produce may be altered and it may be beautiful and it may be divine, but you, you needed a substance to get there. You didn't do that with your own willpower. And I believe that that will, uh, quickly fade away and nothing will be learned and it and you won't be able to replicate the experience without the without the drug and and uh i'm sure you're uh, i'm sure you're confronted with that same plight from people you know in my experience my brother it does work i mean i've never taken it but to see when people describe to me their experience, I've been through similar things. Um, oh, I saw a color like this and this, and my awareness was altered, and I felt some infinite love. Yeah, that's what it is. So it does work, but it messes you up. And you once told me that your analogy is, well, it's like using steroids or things to become stronger. Um, it does work, and then... A bill comes later and you get messed up and you don't even know why. Yeah, because eventually in, if you're going to take steroids to run faster, uh, once you stop taking those steroids, you will not be as fast. And you have to wonder, uh, 
you know, if the, the medical or the, the physiological repercussions of taking a, a substance to alter your state of mind, um, you know, what are the long-term damages of that? Because it does work. That's, that's the thing that's so enticing. You're absolutely right. And uh, I have taken uh, a host of different hallucinogenics and I've had some amazing spiritual experiences. So that's why I'm torn between, you know, do this or don't do this, just like the monastic path, do this or don't do this. And, and uh, when I experience it, please. Oh, please, never meant to interrupt you. I just thought you. What, what? It's it's a it's a it's a it's a matter of well it's it's very it's very context specific you know what are you doing what is the situation and also what is the what is the long term consequences of what you're doing and what do you expect the long term consequences to be it's uh, to me it's not a light question when someone asks me if 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 they should take uh, hallucinogenics to experience an altered state of consciousness. Uh, I don't take that question lightly because, no. you know, it really it depends on how you see it, how you believe that you will be afterwards. And uh, if you're willing to risk not feeling very special afterwards, but being just, just as you were. Here, here's my answer. Um, every single religion in the world is based on the existence of many dimensions. Don't know if you've ever thought about that, but, you know, the Buddhists talk about many dimensions, and so do the Hindus, but also the Christians. They say, you know, even Catholicism says, well, there's heaven and the purgatory and there's hell and there's this. Their system is simple, but still many dimensions. And others like shamanic traditions and ancient Hinduism, they are much more complex, which I think is closer to reality. And even physicists are now saying, well, maybe there's dimensions, parallel realities. Uh, and they can be intertwined. I mean, one of the, the criticisms that ancient uh, Eastern religions like Hinduism get are someone saying, well, you have some gods which are, I don't know, they have the head of an elephant and they have, um, they are part animal. And then the answer is, well, uh, an angel is part animal. He has wings. And also, if you read some parts of the Bible, Ezekiel, um, the, the entities described by, you know, in, in these divine realms are pretty out there, you know. Uh, so there are other layers of reality. And part of expanding awareness is to eventually not just see things here, but to experience things both deeper. I can look into a flower and I, I can have a very different experience of the divine within the flower right here. But I can also experience things which exist in other dimensions. All of that happens when consciousness expands, either through meditation or through um, substances. In ancient cultures, I think they were used, Rajan, to, uh, in a very sacred way, as if to show people, mm -hmm. okay, yeah. let me just show you that this is not the whole of existence. Yeah. Uh, right? In, in, in that way, it was like showing someone, okay, this is how Mozart plays. It's beautiful. Now let me teach you the first piano lesson. <laughs> but you get a sample of it. 
<laughs> and and it was done in a very sacred um, sacred environment. And I'll, I'll tell you why. You know why. But let me just tell you, everyone who's listening. Not all of those other realms of existence are benign. When you take things, some energies and some entities which are not exactly high-minded and benign may interfere with your energy, your consciousness, and your life. And there's the astral plane and the many subplanes of the astral plane. So when the old shamans and the old rishis took Soma in India, they would perform a ritual. And the beginning of every puja is uh, basically telling all the bad spirits to go away because I'm going to do something here, which is like a surgery in a hospital. I'm going to open myself up, not the body, but the aura and the energies. And I need some septic protection. I need some uh, cleanness so that when I'm open, only good stuff will interact with me. Otherwise, it's like cutting a wound and jumping into a dirty river. It's yeah. crazy. And some people take these substances in the middle of this very polluted psychic atmosphere of the city. And no man does that mess them up. Absolutely. And it, and it can quickly turn into an unprepared dark night of the soul. Spontaneous dark night. Um, so why don't we naturally transition into that? Uh, the dark night of the soul is something that could I just quickly you and I were before you oh, transition. You're oh. so welcome, Rufus. Anytime. Um, so you mentioned uh, the only ways to access another dimension is through meditation and or psychedelics. But what? Let's say in a dream, when you're in deep sleep, there is no framework of things, like as you were saying about the gods having like elephants, the head of an elephant and things like that. Um, so yeah, in deep sleep, there is no framework. So could you be in another dimension, uh, accessing another dimension, maybe accessing something else through deep sleep? Like what are your thoughts on that? Uh, it's known that uh, several things happen in our sleep. Um, one of them is just the flushing out of daily thoughts. And as in any cleanup, things get messy. You got these weird dreams which make no sense at all. And they have to be discarded. But your soul, your astral body does leave in some occasions when you're asleep. And it can go to any of those many planes. You can visit ancestors. You can attend classes in the inner planes. You can go to terrible places of... Um, Sexual slavery is it because they, they get you through your desires and they will just steal some of your energy. There are many, many places out there. And yes, your astral body does go out. What happens is when it comes back, usually your memories will be both fleeting and mixed with something else. So there's a sadhana, there's a spiritual practice of interpreting your dream memories. And I did that for a while, some three years. Um, and you start to interpret, where have I been? What is just a symbol? What is an actual uh, astral travel? And what is, I'll give you an example. Um, a wonderful book I read many years ago. 
recommended actually uh, by the monastery was about astral projection. It was by the, remember Swami Panchadasi who wrote Astral Callers, which is, which are emerging with Shiva Rajan. Yes. So some, some of our guru's early teachers and this person uh, left in astral travel and he talked to some friends who had been deceased there in other dimensions. And when this person came back, he, he could remember a dream without details in which he was talking to this very nice friend, but the place was very cold. They were both in a mountain with lots of snow. And then this person who had had the astral travel during sleep, he realized that he had left um, the window open and some very cold air was coming through and cooling his feet. So the experience of meeting someone in another plane happened, but the snow was just the creation of his own mind to explain why he was feeling so cold. That other plane he had visited had no snow at all, but the dream recollection when he came back was both the friend and the snow. <laughs> Interesting. So we have to be careful about the interpretation of dreams. That's why you need uh, someone to guide you. Yeah, and, and that's very uh, Jungian. Um, uh, it's a, it's, a, it's a, a form of psychology that is, is for, in my opinion, extremely difficult to, to navigate. And uh, that's why I think that, I mean, a lot of the, we were trained in the monastery to not, to not go there probably just because it would have required too much attention from yeah. uh, the, the, the teachers, the monks and uh, you know, who we considered as mentors uh, because you can get, you can get wrapped up in all kinds of things. And, and I, I wouldn't be able to, to delineate the meanings of certain things over another. And, and, uh, so I never recommended it in my practices and with my students, even though I've, I've been asked. I don't think it's recommended unless you're, uh, you're act actively being supervised by someone. It's much better to forget it unless you're being supervised by someone. Uh, and uh, the person who helped me was Arum Ah. He's really psychic. That. Yeah, he's really psychic and kind of a crazy, crazy monk there. Um, but, but yes, and it was only for two or three years of my training. And then it completely stopped. I don't, I don't remember much of my dreams uh, these days. I just Meaning. have profound, profound uh, teachings from the time I did analyze them. So yes, we, even now we are active in other planes. Doesn't mean I'm walking on a, on a street on the astral plane. No, it means that my astral body is here and that I may, I may be energetically connected to some places I visited during my sleep. So I'd better go to good places when I sleep. And, and that's why, um, you know, this energy and, and consciousness growth thing, it's not just something you do and then you can goof up and uh, it's like being healthy. You, you're free. But in order to have good results, you can't just exercise, exercise and then eat peace every day. 
it has to be complete. Yeah. So if you have, yeah, if you want to work on, it doesn't work. You try. <laughs> I tried. It, it doesn't work. The, the pizza. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you can do that once in a while. No one wants to be uh, rigid. That really doesn't. Fanaticism is awful. But you have to uh, be careful uh, so that even in your dreams, you go to good places. Fanaticism is the death of spontaneity. <laughs> I just, I just came up with that. So, wow, uh, patent that quickly. <laughs> Broadcasted. What do you think, Sanchez? Rokas, I'm going to move on a little bit. Did, did you want to touch on anything else? Um, that's all. Thank you. So you and I um, are in wonderful relationships now with with two beautiful women. Um, you have a wonderful wife, I understand. I do. And I'm a married monk. Is it said? And I'm I'm in a I'm in a wonderful relationship uh, with an amazing soul, and it's been over a year now. And I remember when I first got out of the monastery, Satchinala was there. He was um, one of the first people to reach out and say, I'm here for you. We're still brothers. Um, you know, welcome to the world. And it was a, like a, like a blanket of safety had been covered. I've been covered with it. And how, it was extremely how, how on earth, How on earth would I miss the opportunity of having a brother such as yourself? I would have to be really stupid to let go of you as my brother. So ever since I got out, we've been communicating as much as possible and, and just checking in. And uh, Sachin, along with another uh, former monk who um, we'll have to get on here one day, uh, we created this network and it's, it's very much needed when you leave uh, the training that we were involved in for as long as we were involved in it. And I want to touch on something else regarding that in a minute. But uh, one of the things you had told me, one of the many things you counseled me on is, uh, I, I'll never forget this. You said to be, you know, in our, in our tradition, it was a bit of a misunderstanding of what a master was. And in, in, in a Japanese tradition, to be a master, to be regarded as such, you had to get married. Do you, do you, uh, would you be able to um, express some of that again and uh, go, you know, kind of explain now your, your, which you share the same perspective, your perspective of the relationship, um, the fact that we can now be in a relationship and the beauty that is, um, living life with what we know and, and what, what we're now allowed to do. So I'm very grateful to all the gifts that celibacy has given me. I was, I was really strict in my celibacy. So for, I think, 12 years, I did not touch a woman. And, and that doesn't mean I was fantasizing back there. And No, no, I really strive to... Just keep the energy within myself. And that gave me a great gift. Um, it starts with not blaming someone else. Usually in a relationship, you know, one is leaning on the other and 
the others, you know, will uh, has some problems and moves aside and shifts, you fall. And ideally, both will stand upright and then even their contact is more thorough. So I had no one to blame but myself. Everything was my fault <laughs> as a monk. And I had to work really hard within me. Second, uh, you begin to understand sexual energies as what they are. Energy. It's like a volcano. It wants to blow the first chakra where the genitals are. And it's very easy to see in the monastery who's not working well with their sexual energies because they look very grumpy. Um, even some senior monks, you can tell. And as it turns out, these energies, which are the Kundalini, they rise up through the spine and they lit, lit up other chakras, they light up chakras. Um, and it's mostly done through sex, but really it's not just done by sex. Um, if you're working on something which is your passion, the Kundalini will go up. Your chakras will expand and lighten up. If you're a grandmother who's loving, really loving her grandchildren, your Kundalini will go up and you'll feel fulfilled and you'll be filled with light and energy. So sexual energy is just energy. The thing is, the most powerful way people experience that is through sex. Uh, and celibacy has given me the understanding that it's a wonderful, powerful, powerful energy, which I have to master. Otherwise, it will create some interference with my thoughts. It will uh, subtly uh, deform and transform in a bad way my desires and will lead me to things I don't really want to do, but my desires want me to do. So in order to master myself, I had to understand, whoa, I have a lot of energy here. Let me rechannel it. Celibacy has given me that. But um, the greatest saints of India were called the Rishis. And all of them were married monks or married sages. Uh, in order to become a Zen master in Japan, you have to get married. Otherwise, it's considered that you don't have enough wisdom to really be stable and calm and in peace under the toughest circumstances. And apparently the toughest circumstances should include a wife. <laughs> so, <laughs> right? That is true. <laughs> right? So um, it has changed my perspective on, um, on monasticism. But I wasn't really sure. I mean, we were in touch with married monks. There's one, Swami Gitananda. I don't know if you met him. I did, but we were friend, friends with married swamis and monks at the monastery, but ours were celibate. But one day, studying deep, very deep uh, ancient scriptures, I came up across the mutation of the word Brahmacharya. Brahmacharya in modern dictionaries is a Sanskrit word which is translated to celibacy, having no sex. But Brahmacharya in ancient dictionaries, it means Acharya, which means mastery, and Brahma, 
creative energy. It doesn't mean repression of the creative energy. It doesn't mean a cork. It means mastery. So I said, wait. And then India is the place where the Kama Sutra comes from. The Tirumantinam, which is a very sacred book in the tradition we were taught, talks a lot about sex. And there the is tantra, an entire chapter on it. Right? And the word tantra means method to change energies. There's tantric sex, but there's, there are tantric mantras and there are tantric meditations. It just means it's something made to change the energy. So tantric sex means sex which, whose intent is not directly pleasure, but to transform the couple's energies. So if brahmacharya, I had been told for a long time, it was just not doing it. And the, the older meaning means do it as a master. Master the energies. Make it sacred. Make it all about love and understanding and transmutation. Um, so I learned all of that and I said, well, maybe I can have a woman by my side. And then I just told them up there, I said, you know, I'm here if it happens. And eventually a very special woman showed up and she's more per perfect than I could hope for. She's very kind, she's very loving toward all creatures, not just me, but mostly me, thankfully. And uh, <laughs> she's just very kind with, you know, all the trees and all the, she's a wonderful soul. And I try to, to have a life with her uh, in a state of brahmacharya, Try to master the creative energies. And speech is a creative energy. It's not just sex. My, my, um, the way I look with my eyes, I'm sending a message that's also creative energy. My voice can be creative energy. So um, I try to be very mindful of creative energy because it is true that sex, mindless sex can dissipate creative energies. And then you're not the master. You're the slave of sex. And that's why... I'm so happy Helena exists. exists. Helena is wonderful. Uh, and I, it's the same thing for me. I, I got out of the monastery. You had explained to me that, that you know, don't, you wouldn't rush anything, but it is, it is a part of understanding the totality of the mind and the energies that go within the body and the different bodies. And I said, whatever happens, happens. I'm not, I'm not, seeing anything I'm not even thinking about it I'm just doing my work which is intense and if it happens it happens and she just you know uh, synchronicity via synchronicity and the law of attraction I guess she just came into my life and uh, you know I, I of course imagined you know if I was going to be with someone, they'd have to have, they'd have to be a pretty high standard because of what I've been through in life and, and where I'm at now in my consciousness. They, they have to represent a, a part of me. And sure enough, um, to, to, it was immediately like, wow, this, this, this person thinks exactly like I do. And, you know, the, the conversations and the, the values that we held and still hold 
are so similar. It's, it's, it's uncanny, I guess is a good word for it. And, um, I, I do understand why you would need to get married to be a master in the Zen tradition because, you know, you have to put your teachings to the test, uh, when masculine and feminine are understood, um, you have to, you have to really test those dynamics out and say, well, you know, what is the perfect relationship and, and, and how are these things possible and how do people stay together an entire lifetime? And, uh, I think, uh, I don't know. It, it's a good example for my own coaching and maybe that's why relationships have come up as one of my main, uh, clientele. Uh, but it's a, it's a beautiful practice and it's, it's the, it's the, it's the mastery of a relationship that really is just a reflection of mastery of self. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Because the other, everyone else is an aspect of you. If energy is everywhere and you are, part of everything, even a flower, even a plant, even a faraway person is part of you, but it's not in the same proportion. The person who's your companion, who's your lover, whom you choose to live with and live life with, she's a big part of yourself. And uh, you evolve, she evolves with you, he or she, and uh, things are really intertwined. And that challenges your concept of uh, selfishness of your pretense in your ego. Oh, I know so much. I'm a monk. So having that person, even to put you in check, is a beautiful thing. And I've benefited a lot from uh, having this beloved woman with me. Uh, I'm going to pull from the uh, ether bank. I put a mat I put a, a question up here before we started that conversation. I'm going to grab it again. What is the uh, what was the most challenging aspect of, of leaving the monastery? I'm not sure we've ever talked about that. Oh, let me say two things. First, um, the most the most difficult aspect of being in the monastery which you didn't ask me, let me say that. It surprised me. I thought it would be celibacy. And by far, oh my God, it was obedience. Mm. By far, the, most, the hardest thing to do was to, to uphold the vow of obedience. Because in the beginning, I really needed it. Uh, my ego wanted to know better. And I wanted to do things which were not allowed. And I'm so glad they were not allowed. And after I had some deep inner experiences and kinds of samadhi, obedience became difficult for another reason. And that's because the soul is very free and the monastery is very cloistered and rigid. So I had to obey, even though I knew the rules were for those uh, who were not in the vibration of the soul. Everything is allowed if you're in the vibration of your own true self. Um, because it by itself is disciplined. But the monastery has great rules for people who are in the ego, not the soul. So it was hard in two ways. To follow that because of my ego, and then to follow that knowing that the soul is pure freedom. That's the first part of the answer. Uh, when I left the monastery... That's, that's I, beautiful. 
that is that is absolutely true. I had the same issue in the monastery as well as you know. Um, uh, we can touch on that later. What what is the second one? So when I left the monastery, the hardest thing for me was to um, to come to terms with the fact that the world doesn't make sense because it really doesn't. Um, not to say that the monastery is perfect, very far from it. Uh, but people live unacceptable levels of chaos, confusion, and self, and uh, lying to themselves. Um, and the world is built in a very awkward way. Before going to the monastery, I just accepted things as they were. And after living at the monastery, when I came back, I thought, whoa, this is messed up. Oh, goodness. The world is just a reflection of people's subconscious. And people's subconscious is just very messed up. So a big challenge for me was to be able to become this rebellious soul. I'm a rebel. But I have to be a constructive one. I have to be here in you the world. You have to be a rebel teaching. to join a monastery. Oh, please. Let's just change things. <laughs> right? Not with a, uh, a leather coat and a Harley Davidson. But, oh man, you have to want to change yourself. And then you have to change yourself, change your life, and then change the world. It has to happen in threes. I change myself, that changes my life, and I change the world. Otherwise, it's either selfish if you don't change the world, or if you don't change your life, it's useless. Or if you don't change yourself and you try to change the world, uh, you're being um, a hypocrite because you haven't changed and you want to change everything. So it has to happen in threes. Um, the most difficult thing for me then was to be out here upholding the rebellion. Uh, being this person who says, I'm here. I won't, I will accept the world as it is, but I will not forget for a moment that it's really messed up. Because I have to be the difference. I have to, to, pull, to, to push awareness up to go beyond this every day. Otherwise, I'll just become acclimated and, and used to things. And I'll just become someone who has very little to offer because I'll become one of the ordinary. Um, one more living an ordinary life. So I have to, it was very hard to remind myself every day, this is not right. And also to not fight with it because it's not about fighting. It's about keeping the door to transcendence open. I, I don't win by destroying or fighting. I win by opening portals and consciousness, metaphorically speaking, so that I can go through and people can go through and from the other side they say whoa I can change the world can change uh, there are other paths wonderful absolutely absolutely yep uh. <laughs> I had help I mean I tried to get normal jobs and I failed miserably <laughs> <laughs> when, I, when I was first teaching, I thought, I'll teach some, but I, I'll get a job so that I won't starve. And, you know, and they all, I was so blessed that they all uh, sent me away, turned me down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, freedom is a beautiful word. When you said that, I immediately thought freedom is what 
drove me to leave the monastery. It was, it was the idea that I understood freedom for the first time and I, and I had been free and I, and I was free and I'll always be free. And the moment that, that I went through my, my experiences that matured my uh, consciousness and, and really it's just, it, it, my, I had been, I, I look at it as I'm learning here. Uh, this is, this is, I'm over here and I'm learning things. And all of a sudden what I learned merged into one. And I was like, holy shit, I'm free. I am a yes. free spirit. And it clicks, doesn't it? I, yeah. It clicks. And I know what to do with my freedom. That's the best part. Not only that I'm free, but I know what to do with it now. And I said, you know, I'm going to, I know who I am. I'm going to take this amazing uh, capacity and go and be free. And in the monastery, it is it's a wonderful place of discipline and, and, and um, challenge. But it's, um, it, it, it doesn't rely on freedom. It relies on structure and routine. And if there's no structure and routine, if there's no order, then there must be chaos. Well, I heard, and that was before our time, that the founder of that particular monastery was very free and very chaotic. Um, so he would create rigid rules and he would use his own wisdom to break them. I'll give you an example. I heard, uh, and this was from Kaivalyanatha Swami, Jyotinara. He said that one day he heard he was with Rudeva, the founder. And someone said, very proudly, I sleep on a, on a board on the floor. I don't have a futon. And I'm very proud of my austerity. And he looks very cocky about that and, and a little bit arrogant. His ego was getting bigger because he was more spiritually developed. He could, didn't need a futon on a mattress. So Gurudeva heard that, and he was quiet. And then the next day he announced that the other three monks who had heard the conversation would join him for a weekend at a nearby luxury hotel with very thick <laughs> mattresses, he added. The mattresses are going to be wonderful. And he said nothing else. And then they had a weekend. They really went to uh, Princeville Hotel and spent a weekend there. The guru, the guru, my point here is important. Uh, the guru was playing the role of the soul and the soul is pure freedom. So he would institute this rigidity of the monastery itself. He would create rules. But just like the soul, once the ego is transcendent, you can do whatever you want because you won't want to do certain low things. Yeah. But, you know, you say, well, if I'm in my soul, can I just kill someone or rape someone? The soul will never want to do those things. Um, and he represented the soul. And he was this freedom. But as the years went by and he became ill, the monastery became much more rigid. And when Rajan and I joined, uh, it was very much by the book. And the, the, the main teacher of our times was someone who's wonderful, but terribly by the book. <laughs> yeah, and, and and I later read um, as I was leaving the monastery. I talked about this in my book, and 
I talked about this on the podcast before as, as I was leaving, I was edging, educating myself on the nature of chaos and order theory and uh, explored story and, and unexplored uh, territory. And um, of course that's masculine and that's feminine. And to me, it was this, this amazing representation of this, that the monastery was this um, rigid order and it had to be perfect. And if anything changed without group approval, um, it would, the structure itself would crumble because culture and tradition would, would go along with it. And, and we would all be, um, you know, maniacs and, and, and we'd lose our monastic spirit. But, uh, and then, and I was thinking, well, I'm totally identified with the group and group identity is something that destroys meaning and purpose in life. And it's that individuality that drives your soul onto new and better things. And that's, that hit me hard. And that, and and I said, you know, yeah. I didn't know that before because I didn't know myself. I didn't have individuality. I always had um, a group or or a mirrored identification with whatever was around me, maybe uh, societal uh, conditioning. And so now that I was ultimately able to choose who I wanted to be and I knew who that was, then uh, I've, I've, I am now able to interact in the world as a as a, a free a free ind- individual, thus being making every moment of my life uh, the the best moment that's ever been. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the soul is about freedom, exactly that, and in individuality. A um, few things to say here, if I may. Have you didn't want to interrupt? Okay. Done. Okay. Um, First, let me just tell you that I will need to go in a couple of minutes. And this has been the best conversation I've had in 2020, for sure. And I thank you, Rokas, and I thank you, Rajan, for that. I'm really grateful. Sign off whenever you... I'll need to go soon. But here's my commentary on what you said. It is very true that the soul reaches a level of freedom and individuality, which is amazing. And it's where creativity, true creativity comes from. But there's a little bit of a dance, and uh, this is how I've experienced it. The, The ego can be very individualistic as well. And then you go through a phase of collectivism or the group or you, you forget yourself so that the group can flourish. And then you cross that threshold in which you are forgetting about yourself. And all of a sudden you remember, remember yourself too. But this time you're not remembering your individuality as an ego. It's new. You're remembering, you're discovering your new individuality as a soul. And it's a little bit dangerous for people if they don't know where they are. But there's a simple key I've learned. If you're in the individuality of the ego, you want everything to come to you. You want to receive things. Once you achieve the individuality of the soul, you become like the sun. And you just want everything to come from you. You want to radiate 
out the race. The ego wants to receive the pleasures, the money, the praise. It's the black hole. And it's very individualistic. So in order to dissolve this ego, you go, it's, it's one of the possible techniques, you go through a phase of uh, nullifying yourself for the group. But you have to come out the other side, becoming an individual again. But then the individual is the soul, and you radiate out instead of pulling in. That's what I've learned. I hope you, it works for you, too. That is, a, that is a good learning, and that is a, a perfect place to uh, conclude. It's a lot of information that we've given. Uh, and so thank you so much, Sanjana. Always appreciate our conversation. Love you, my brother. Uh, for everyone um, in your uh, in your uh, radius or however you teach, and uh, where do where do people how do people connect with you? Oh, I've I've been only teaching in Portuguese for now, and I hope that well, this is actually encouraging. I was able to speak English for two hours, so I hope that one day I can teach in English too. Um, but I do exist on Instagram at Satyanada, but it's, it's all in Portuguese. So for now, you have, um, you have the duty of taking care of people in English. I'll do that here in Portuguese. And one day I hope to join you for classes and even, you know, uh, I'll be there with you giving retreats uh, in person. And we'll do that together. So, yeah, that, that is... Um... I want to thank uh, everyone, and I do want to say that if you want to find Satyanada, if you do speak Portuguese, uh, he's on Instagram, S-A-T-Y-A-N-A-T-H-A, Satyanada, and uh, he's, your posts are so regular, your, your content is rich, and uh, Satyanada helped me with my content when I first got out and said, Good God, man, you need some lighting and uh, you need some editing work. <laughs> I'm gonna, and he sent me my first uh, and, and only audio and lighting equipment and a stand. I, it, I use it every it's day. All about, it's all about the light. <laughs> uh, listeners can reach out to me, Raj, at rajanshankara.com and give us feedback. If you could leave a review for the podcast, that would be wonderful. And uh, that's the three of us signing out. Thank you. Thank you for the privilege. Thank you, Rokas. Thank you, Rajan.